fully aware that Memorial Day is typically the kickoff of the summer for most people. I was horribly reminded of that over the course of the last week, trying to find people to participate in worship this morning. Uh, Six different guys that I asked were uh, vacationing with families, and it is that reminder that it is that time of year. Uh, All the kids are out of school, and it's an opportunity for us to go and see people and (coughs) excuse me, do things we don't get to do. So uh, I'm grateful y'all didn't have plans today, and that I'm not here with just me and my boys. And so uh, we are glad you are here with us today at West Irwin. Uh, Tomorrow is one of those days that matters. Um, Back in 1865, uh, our country was reeling with loss in a way that we'd never really experienced it before. (coughs) Um, This country found itself not at odds with others, but with one another. And at the conclusion of the Civil War, we found ourselves in a position where we had a lot of new graves, a horrible amount of new graves. In 1965, there were certain American communities that started a tradition where they would go and tend to those remains, those headstones of those who had fallen during the Civil War. And in 1968, uh, James Garfield, who at the time was just an Ohio representative, read a statement at the newly opened Arlington National Cemetery in front of 5,000 people. I'm not going to read it because the English is so old that at the end you would be more confused than when you started. But if you're interested, it is a easily found speech. But he basically said, today is a day that we remember those whose lives were sacrificed at the expense of freedom. And that's a hard, that was a hard pill to swallow. It was a very much a northern sentiment at the time. And over the years that followed, that grew. It was May 30th where the idea of Decoration Day first came into play. And it was to decorate the graves of fallen soldiers, to remember. However, it was specifically related to the Civil War. And it's in the years that followed that that morphed into something larger. By 1890, all of the former Union states had adopted May 30th as a day of remembrance. But it wasn't until 1968 that the U.S. government set aside the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, and Memorial Day was one of those days where we remember those who in all of the wars since then laid down their lives for their country. The argument is always made because we have the benefit of hindsight to look back and ask, were these justified? Were they uh, what, what we should have been engaging in? And at the time, those people who gave their lives were for the most part unconcerned with that statement. They were serving because they had been called, asked, or told. I shared with my class this morning that each of my grandfathers uh, served, uh, one in Korea, one in World War II, and one talks about it and one never did. And I think experience changes those things for all of us, regardless of what experiences we've been through. Some are traumatic, some are good. But tomorrow we remember. 
as the summer begins, we remember. But we also begin. So it's both a day of looking back and a day looking forward. We begin the summer, and one of the, the pitfalls that I think we easily fall into when it comes to the summer, especially if you have younger children at home, or just children at home, period, is summer can become a blur, where you have what feels like this huge amount of time where you're able to, to go and travel and see and be and um, have all of this time together. So one of two things happen. You, either you're a meticulous planner and you put all of these opportunities in front of you and, and you get way, way more excited than your children ever get about it. And you, you put all these plans into action and then at the end of the summer you, you look back and you just, you're kind of proud. You're like, well, look what we did this summer. That's option number one. Option number two is just the hot mess summer where you spend so many days laying by a pool or curled up on the couch or playing a video game that the middle of August hits and you ask yourself, where did it go? Now, in both of those scenarios, intentionality is either present or not present, but neither of them, in the way I just described it, involve our intentional relationship with Jesus Christ. There is a YouTuber by the name of Jimmy Donaldson. Now, when I say that name, probably only about five people in this room can make an attachment to it. Uh, But he is the single most subscribed to individual on the face of the earth on YouTube. You probably don't know him as Jimmy Donaldson, if you've ever heard his name. And that is a big if in this room. You've heard the name Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast has 155 million subscribers just on YouTube, not counting all of his other social media platforms. And he's been in the news a lot lately for some controversial things that have been happening in his group. But the thing that got my boys and I interested in watching him was his philanthropy. He gives back millions and millions and millions of dollars to different communities. This year alone, he's given back just his group, $5 million to Ukrainian refugees He's rebuilt three children's homes in Mexico, planted water wells in Africa, rebuilt homes for tornado survivors, but he also gives back money here in the States. And it's always couched in a fun way, and so sometimes it's as an Uber driver where he goes to pick someone up, and at the end of the ride, he hands them the keys to the car. Sometimes it's a last man standing situation where the last person that can be in whatever challenge he sets up, wins a million dollars. But the one that I've enjoyed watching the most when we watched in the past, watched those videos, was his red circle challenge. And he would go into a store, uh, whether it was a Walmart or a, a GameStop or a grocery store, and he says, here is a circle of red tape. You have 10 minutes. Anything you can fit inside this circle, regardless of how tall you go, as long as you keep it in the circle, is yours. Go. Now, the minute I'd said what I just said, because of the way our human brain works, you're thinking, where would I go first? And part of that depends on the store. But I guarantee you, you're not going to the potato chips first. You're going to your high-dollar items. And so you're going to laptops or electronics or jewelry. One of the smartest ones I ever saw was an individual in a Walmart who went and cleaned out the gift card section. Yeah. 
Yeah, some of y'all were like, why don't I think of that? I'm like, well, you've never been in the red circle situation, so you didn't have to think of it. But sometimes when people would come back to the red circle, it was just a little bit too big. And his rule was if it didn't fit in the circle, you didn't get any of it. And so at the end of the challenge, they would, you would see the disappointment on their face. And Jimmy would walk up, and he'd remove the tape, and he'd simply enlarge the circle. And they would still get all of those things. When it comes to life, this is a pretty close picture of our relationship with God. We have a circle that is our life, and we are trying to cram as much into it as possible. Sometimes that's stuff, sometimes that's experiences, but we allow ourselves to try and get so much in that circle that the question is, did we leave any room for God? In the circle. But what God actually does when we allow Him to be the center, the focus of the circle, when He says, just put me in the center, put me in the middle, when we need the circle to increase, it does. And this is not a health and wealth and prosperity kind of circle that we're talking about here. I think when we look at the life of Jesus and we read scripture in context, if the Son of Man, if Jesus Himself did not have a place to lay His head, the odds are not good that God has promised us wealth or riches in this life. So if we decide to put him there, if we make him the center of our circle, when we talk about enlarging territory, when we talk about influence, it is about what we have with what we have been given. So our challenge today is going to be found in Matthew chapter 6. So I want to ask you to turn there with me, if you would. Beginning in verse 19, and we're going to work through a decent portion of this chapter this morning. We're trying to determine in our lives what we put in our circles. I believe that we all are, whether we do it or not. Each decision that we make along the way determines what is in our circle, what we allow to have influence on us in our life, who we allow, what our focus is, what our, where our heart is. We have a lot of decisions that we make. There are thousands of ads and choices that try to influence all of that. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus attempts to help us with our strategy. He coaches us on what to prioritize in our life. We begin in chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be awesome. What are we storing up? Number one on your outlines this morning, uh, Tucker saw some wonderful posters that I found from the 1800s. Uh, on Decoration Day and what that looked like and how they promoted it. And my PowerPoint presentation became corrupted. And so uh, none of that is showing up. You still have an outline in your bulletin, so if you want to follow along. Number one, when we look at this passage in Matthew chapter 6, is that we need to simplify our view. Simplify is your blank there, on stuff. And by stuff, I'm referring to our money, our possessions, our things. It's really easy for us to get a warped view when we are conditioned at a very early age, at least in this country, that toys or treasures lead to happiness. 
Jesus says, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth. It can literally be translated as don't treasure treasures. Don't let that be where your heart dwells, where you find yourself continually going. When you pull out your phone, if you have a smartphone and you're scrolling through your Facebook or your Instagram feed and you see something and they're both really smart. They know what you want. They know what you're talking about. They know what you're listening to, what you're watching, what you're hearing. So all of a sudden, there's this item that pops up that you didn't even know existed. And now all of a sudden, you can't live without it. Some people spend more time with their UPS delivery person than they do with their families. It's only sort of joking. That we, we become so consumed by the things that we don't have that we completely miss out on what we do. What we have been given through the grace of Jesus Christ. Did you know that in the last 10 years in the United States, one of the single most booming pieces of our economy is storage units? Because we have too much stuff. So we need more places to put our stuff where moths and vermin will destroy for where your heart your treasure is there your heart will be also jump down to verse 24 Jesus follows that by saying no one can serve two masters so one of two things is going to happen either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to one and despise the other but you cannot serve both God and money. We can think of it like this. We simplify our view on stuff because if money defines us, it will destroy us. Back in the 19th century, from the mid 18, early 1800s, so David Livingston was born in 1817 and passed away 60 years later. He was a well known missionary in Africa, instrumental in taking the gospel to remote portions of Africa. And when he did that, it was the first time that many of those indigenous people had ever, number one, seen a white man, and number two, heard about Jesus. Now, if you're familiar at all with white men taking the message of Jesus to remote places on earth, it doesn't usually go well. His life was threatened on many an occasion. occasion. They tried to threaten him, tried to kill him. He actually passed, believe it or not, of of natural causes. And when I say natural, I mean natural for Africa. He died of a combination of malaria and internal bleeding from dysentery. But during the period of time that he spent in Malawi, he had changed the heart. And by he, I mean pointed people to the foot of the cross. And Jesus changed the heart of the people there. So when he passed away, They made a decision. And they did something that for many of us would seem barbaric, but for his family was the right thing to do. David Livingstone's body is buried at Westminster Abbey, but his heart was removed in Africa and was buried at the base of a tree. And the reason was this. His body belongs in England, but his heart stays in Africa. If your heart was removed on the day of your passing, where would it go? Where would they bury your heart? Where would your heart feel most at home? 
if those closest to you made that decision for you, like they did in the life of David Livingstone, where would they choose the final resting place of your heart to be? Would it be in your office? Would it be at the golf course? Your family room watching Netflix? In front of the mirror? Or just holding your phone eternally? Where would it be? I will give you a hint. Because the Bible tells us it will be very close to what you value. Your heart will follow what you treasure the most. The second step that Jesus talks to us about in verse 25 is this, that we need to be, as, believe, as, as gospel-believing followers of Jesus, we need to be confident that God will provide. That's the next blank in your outline. Be confident that God will provide. In verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food? The body more than clothes. Jesus is trying to help us reduce our anxiety by instead redirecting our trust. Saying, don't worry about these things that I'm telling you I'll take care of. If God cares about all these other things and and God has your heart, God will give give you the needs that you have. Jesus is challenging his listeners here in the Sermon on the Mount to grow in an area of trust. And it's interesting when we look at the psychological part of that because it has been proven over and over that the older we get, the more averse we become to risk. If we have not already made that decision, the chances of somebody fully redirecting and reevaluating the direction of their life go down exponentially. Because we've made a lifetime deciding on who we're going to be. And so if we come to a fork in that road and say, it has to change, it has to be different, my heart has to be in a different place, the typical response is, I don't want to take that risk. I know where I've been, I know who I've trusted, and I know how it's gone. And because I know that, that's where I'm going to play my comfort zone card. And yet we will take risks in other parts of our life. We will take risks with our jobs, with hiring someone. We take risks with people maybe that are underqualified. We take risks with the type of people, maybe some of you are sitting there this morning thinking, I took a risk with this person I'm sitting beside right here when we married each other. Far too many of you just looked at the person you're sitting beside. (laughs) We take risks with how we we spend our, in the, in the business world, and how we spend our marketing dollars, that I'm going to throw thousands of dollars at this one singular thing in the hopes that it will bring increase. But I am going to take that risk. And I want to ask a question this morning that you'll see at the bottom of your outline. When is the last time you took a spiritual risk? We will risk a lot of other things. We will risk our lives driving on 635 in Dallas at 5 p.m., We are averse to it. We don't want to do it. That's why we live in Tyler. But we will. But when is the last time we were willing to take a spiritual risk? When we shared our faith with someone who we knew did not share that faith with us. The last time we really followed through and said, you know what? Just things that even can be seen from the outside looking in. That I haven't really plugged into my church family the way that my heart has been convicting me to do. The way that the Spirit has been leading me to do that I haven't led my individual family 
in the way that it needed to go, in our, in our in intentionalness this summer of how am I going to disciple my children? How am I going to share Jesus with my neighbors? When was the last time you took a spiritual risk? And here's the thing we need to remember. As people who believe this book to be true, Jesus is not asking us to take a risk without reward. Jesus isn't asking us to jump out of a perfectly good airplane or to base jump off some cliff. Jesus is asking us to trust him with our life each and every day. And in this passage in Matthew chapter 6, he's challenging us to give him our anxiety. That's what this is rooted in. Each of these things, when we're talking about our treasures in heaven and, and the worry and the fear that we have in life, it's all about saying, let me have all that. Let me direct you. Let me lead you. And I'm promising you that I'm going to give you the tools you need to make it. Chapter 6, jump down to verse 28. Again, we're talking, he, he, he just got done saying, don't worry. So here's why. Why do you worry about your clothes, verse 28? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grasses of the field, which are here today and tomorrow are thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Trust, we trust God for the necessities of life. And trust sometimes looks like this. God, I'm, I'm trying. It doesn't always start with, I 100% trust you, Lord. Sometimes it, that day starts with, I'm trying really hard. But things haven't been good lately. So I'm going to give you today because that's all I can give you, and then I'll give you tomorrow, tomorrow. But today I'm going to give you what I have. If we trust but, but if our trust is put in our status or our possessions or our position, instead of God, we find our identity and our self-worth in things that are, are temporary and that will fail and that will fall. Some of you are familiar with the name Paul Mazur. He was a Wall Street banker that worked for Lehman Brothers years ago. And about 26 years ago, he made this statement. See if this sounds true today about where our country has gone. We must shift America from a needs-based culture to a desire-based culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have even been consumed. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. It's an economist saying if we want to increase our wealth... We have to convince you that what you have is not enough. Your needs have been met, so now that's not enough anymore. Now it needs to be your desires. And, and I mean, if, if I'm being honest, from my perspective, they have succeeded. Created discontent. Our nation's wealth has gone up and our happiness has plummeted. So, again, we come back to the circle. What are we trying to cram into our circle? How much more can we put in there? And where does Jesus have a place in it? Is it in the center or is it so close to the edge that if one more thing enters the circle, he will no longer have a place there? In Luke chapter 12, verse 15, 
Jesus gives us another warning. He's talking about the, the, the rich fool in this parable. And in verse 15, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist of an abundance of possessions. And please don't hear this morning that I'm saying don't, we don't focus on our savings, we don't focus on our investments, or even, yes, please wear clothing everywhere you go. Like 99.9% of the time, wear clothes. Jesus himself, in fact, says that anyone who doesn't take care of his own family is far worse than an unbeliever. But take a really, really hard look again at your own life, at that circle of your life. Is Jesus at the center of your circle? And if he's not, what would it take to put him there? That brings us to our last, our last point this morning and where Jesus really has been going this entire time in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, down in verse 31. Jesus says, So don't worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans, the unbelievers, those who believe in any God other than Jesus, other than God himself, even the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But verse 33, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things that you need will be given to you. It's a promise for necessity, not luxury. It's a promise that he will give us what we need. And it's important, again, as, which I'm grateful Tucker mentioned this last week because he hears me spout this all the time. Context de- determines content. Who was the Sermon of the Mount to? It was being given to a group of people who were already living, just waiting for the next meal. Not in an abundance, but out of necessity. Hand to mouth. And they did, Jesus is telling these people, don't worry. I got you. So if he's saying that to them, what would that message look like to us in 2023? What would he say to us in our cultures? What are the, the dozens or more of barriers in our lives that keep us from putting Jesus Christ at the center? And I want to just for a moment as we close show you the one that I think is the number one. Do you know that on average, we touch this thing 2,000 times per day? This is a three-year-old study, so it's actually more than that right now, and it's actually not 2,000. That's a lie. It's 2,617 times per day. If you're a millennial or Gen Z, it's over 4,000 times per day. On average, an American has 150 notifications on their phone every single day that pop off, that ding, that make your wrist vibrate. And we ask ourselves, what has our focus? I don't think we really have to ask because I think we already know. I've always found it interesting, the logo on the back of my phone. I'm using an Apple. And before this company existed, if I had seen a fruit with a chunk bitten out of it, shaped like an apple, my immediate thought would have been Adam and Eve and the fall in the Garden of Eden. Satan's not even subtle. 
And I'm not saying Steve Jobs was Satan. I'm saying that there are indications all around us. And if you're using an Android, there's probably already a snake on there. So, you know, we're moving. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. So what restraints do we need to place in our lives to put Jesus back in the center of the circle? So for you, for many people in our country, that would be a great place to start. Maybe there are times of the day where we don't respond to text messages and we actually make our family the most important thing in the room instead of always being the secondary thing in the room. Because I will say this as a parent, what I know to be certain is that if I am consumed by something, my kids will be even more so. They see it in me for 18 years of their life and beyond. Our peers, our co-workers, our other family members, our extended family members see by our actions what is most important to us. You can say all day long that this is the most important thing, but whatever is sitting in the middle of the circle is what's most important. So this is what I want to challenge each of us with this week. Look again at the statement on the screen behind me. We can say all day long that this is what matters the most. But if we don't live like it really does matter, then our words really don't matter either. What is in the center of your circle? You're in the store. You've been filling your circle for nine minutes. Mr. Beast says one more minute. I'm going to tell you, you got one more minute left. God does not tell us how many minutes are left in the span of our life. It could end in a blink of an eye. We actually spoke about that in many of our Bible classes this morning. Too many of us have so much emotional and physical and spiritual baggage that we need a storage unit to keep it all in. So what are we afraid of by simply giving our trust over to God? By putting our faith in Jesus Christ? Are we afraid that Jesus will lead us down a path that we don't want to go? Are we afraid that Jesus is not the person we should follow? Nine times out of ten, the answer is no. What we're afraid of is that we can no longer be self-absorbed. That we can no longer make ourselves the center of our circle. Hope in eternity does not have us in the center of it. It has Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And these things will be added to you. We pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we thank you for the day you have given us today. God, we thank you for the words of Jesus that were given to people who initially heard those words, had so little compared to what you have given to us. God, we are, are trying our best to be the people you call us to be. Lord, help us to give focus to what Scripture calls us to be, what your Spirit convicts our hearts to be to watch out for the greed that is all too consuming, and to have faith and trust, not in pixie dust, but in the message of hope that comes because Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he was and continues to be. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If there is any way that we can encourage you as a church to put Jesus in the center of your life, or if you need to make that decision for the very first time, and put him on in baptism, and to make that first decision in the 
long line of many to come. We would love to do any of those things for you. Why don't you come while we stand and sing?